Welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices, instead look for the processes and questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for Higher Ed at Niche, and my guest today is Athena Myers. Athena is the Chief Product Officer here at Niche, and she came here on a mission to modernize the school search and enrollment process. Athena joined Niche with over 15 years of experience, previously leading the Knotts Global Wedding Marketplace, and was recognized in 2019 as one of DC's 50 on Fire in tech innovation. She's also had roles at Time Magazine, Time.com, and AsmallWorld.com. Welcome, and thanks for making time to chat today. Happy to be here. All right, I'm going to start off with two questions that we ask everybody. First up, and my personal favorite, what's something you tried that didn't work, and what did you learn? Ah, so that is a great question for someone in product development because product and marketing folks are trying things all the time. We're running experimentation and A-B testing all the time. It's essential to our roles and to landing on the right solution. So we crave and look for those failures and things that didn't work because it enables us to keep going and focus on the right thing. So... I think a really simple example that comes to mind, something that we tried and didn't work that probably resonates with a lot of people is related to registration forms. So there's so many different paths on all different products and especially in applications and enrollments for things where you need to fill out forms. And on a product that I was running, we were, we had the hypothesis that a registration process that was seven steps would convert a lot higher if it was three steps, even if it was the same amount of information being asked, because just the thought in the progress bar that, wow, I've got a lot more to do could really influence someone. So we we tested less steps, more fields per step, and did not see the results we were looking for. It turns out that the lighter steps, even though there were more, got a lot more people through the flow. and. We also found that when we tried to test less fields, it resulted in lower quality. So sometimes when you lighten the load on someone, it's easier for them and less of an, less of an investment of effort to get through it. And sometimes that teeny bit of added weight makes sure that the person has high intent and is really vested. And so I thought that was an interesting learning, but really overall just underscores why testing is important. So I thought I'd share that. Yeah, that's really interesting too. That that runs counter to sort of the conventional wisdom of fewer fewer fields, fewer fields, you know, fewer pages in your inquiry form in whatever form. That's interesting. Well, I think I mean. that sometimes fewer fields makes a lot of sense if you don't trade off the quality. It's just the reminder of what do you look at for success. So if success is people made it through the registration and the success ends there, you may not be looking far enough along the funnel of who are those people that made it through and how do they differ from the ones when we had more fields. And if you can reduce the fields, get more people through and the quality stays the same, that is definitely a win because it's a win for the user to give less info. But sometimes those extra fields show both a sign of commitment, but also give you more quality that you need about the individual. So yeah, it is counterintuitive and it's just looking all the way through. Yeah. Well, if seven steps is better than three, was there any any desire to test 10 steps or anything else and see if it get better? <laughs> there were a lot of variations <laughs> tested, yes. And it was all about kind of striking that right balance between converting and not giving up quality. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know, I think this is probably 
a lot of your role. Uh, so what practices do you use when you're brainstorming and bringing new ideas into the work? So in terms of bringing new ideas in, I turn to a lot of sources in an ongoing way for inspiration. And that ranges from things I read, books and articles that may be relevant to product development or our industry, specifically tapping people in my network and sometimes in a regular fashion, ongoing touch points with people that can help bring ideas to me and exploring lots of products, both across the ed tech space and also just other industries and how, how are they solving some of these problems that are all about user experience. And I think bringing new ideas into my work, it's just you know staying fresh with all these different perspectives and what's happening out there. But when it comes to brainstorming, for me, brainstorming is not an independent activity. That's where it's being a strong leader doesn't necessarily mean you are the individual that generates the best idea. I think that being a strong leader means that you're bringing the right perspectives together and focusing so that these ideas can be surfaced. And that's what I think of with brainstorming. Okay. And when you're brainstorming, do you have, do you like to do it in small groups or do you like to bring the entire product organization together and and do it? I think that there's definitely benefit to a focused group. So there are certainly sources and practices that can be used and tools if you want a lot of people involved. But I think that the focus of the brainstorm and the focus of the group can lead to a better result. What is a little bit different than when you're saying bringing the product development work together, I do think it's important to bring cross functions together. So there may be people outside of the product development organization that are really important to our brainstorms, even if we're the team that's taking the idea and bringing it to light. So I try to try to keep the groups not too large, generally less than 10 people. And if you can get cross-functional perspectives in there, you're going to get ideas that the product team might not have thought of and maybe the, the right one to go after. Okay. So putting this in, in school or, or on campus perspective, you're finding the best success if you take maybe a few people from admissions with a few people from marketing, maybe some financial aid, maybe some faculty, maybe some students, and pulling them together in small groups like that or a group of students, a group of marketing. I think it, yeah, I, I would say that depending on what question is this brainstorm looking to answer. Okay. So a couple principles that I follow. First is ensuring you know the focus of the brainstorm. It's not, let's all get together and just like generate ideas for how we're going to be more innovative. Yeah. It starts with what question are we answering? What problem are we trying to solve? And so if you're positioning it the right way, you want those cross-functional perspectives because they're all going to have a different viewpoint in that problem and how to solve it. And so if I, if I bring it to the school world, yes, it would be, you know, someone from enrollment and someone from finance and someone from marketing, maybe a leader in the school kind of coming together and why not have a student in that same discussion, depending on the question that you're asking for people to spin ideas around. So for me, it's kind of framing the question first What's the goal of this brainstorm? Identifying people that can contribute to it and making sure they know the framing parameters around what where their thoughts should be. So you start with focus and then encourage outside of the box. So starting with focus and then let's think wild here to really generate some interesting concepts. Again, runs a little counter to what you hear sometimes. Oh, we want these big out of the box ideas, right? People want 
they want to start with big, but but you're saying it's more effective than if you start with the smaller, more attainable, and then start reaching, right? Focusing what they're generating big ideas around. Okay. So I can even, if you if it helps, give a real example yeah. of brainstorming on the leadership level internal to niche where a question we may be looking at as we, and we went through a process like this approach the year is thinking about how might, how might we increase value for our clients with a new offering? So that's like a focused question. And then we might some put some parameters around that new offering that may be specific to our unique position between students and schools. It may be, let's, let's first start with four-year colleges or let's first start with K through 12, right? You may put some parameters around the segments you're thinking about. So creating focus of the brainstorm, then it's all ideas accepted, deferred judgment on everything, think outside the box, think big. So for sure, encouraging that out of the box thinking that you're thinking that you're talking about when you think brainstorms, but making sure the ideas are all framed in a way that is going to make them meaningful and, and like a solution that you actually want to take and run with. Okay. Okay. And then, you know, something like this might come up with 20, 30, 40 ideas. How do you then narrow down to what can we actually achieve how do we prioritize? How do we actually turn the brainstorming into action? So I found that in some of these brainstorm sessions that I've held, you want the brainstorm moment to have an even playing field. So I, I don't want a situation where people are throwing their ideas out there because sometimes you're influenced by either the loudest voice, the person that spoke first. It might be the biggest title, they, oh, they definitely know what they're talking about. And so there's some methods where the brainstorming part can actually be done somewhat independently and then ideas are brought together. And for identifying the kind of one to, to roll with, after the ideas are brought together, I tend to group them around themes. You usually find like some shared themes and then let individuals verbalize the idea, where it was coming from, the problem they think it will solve, why they think it'll solve this problem differently than what else is out there, what's the risk, what is the complexity, and give people that context. And others can start to poke in that way too. Do you think we can even pull that off? Aren't we limited by X, Y, and Z? Or that sounds great, but we've tried it before. And so you have that active conversation and you sort of take these concepts and try to put some meat around opportunity, feasibility, risk, limitations, while people are sharing their ideas. Then after that process, I tend to have the full group independently vote and they might get a certain amount of votes they can give. So like, hey, there's 20 ideas, keep all these factors in mind, consider the problem we're trying to solve. And from your perspective, your function, your world, what do you think would be the most impactful one for us to pursue? And they may be able to take three that they put on their list and you start to see some things bubbling to the top and go a little bit deeper on those. Okay. So there's definitely some process around the concept of brainstorming that makes sure you're generating ideas that you really can bring to life and then honing in on the ones that will make the most sense. Yeah, I like that. It seems much more productive than the, okay, we're going to take a half day and everyone just throw every idea out and it's, you know, just a wide open sandbox, right? Well, so it comes from a world where I've certainly been in brainstorms that feel really exciting and motivating, but then if no action comes from it, yeah, 
it doesn't feel good later. And so yeah. you want to do both. You want that feeling of creativity and excitement, but framing in such a way that people know there's going to be action coming from it. Yeah. Okay. Well, diving in here, I, I just want to ask your perspective here as someone who joined Niche from a different industry altogether. As we mentioned in your intro, you came here last year from the Not Worldwide. If you're listening to this live, it's 2022 right now. How has your perspective on education changed since you came to Niche? That's a great question. And I'll start by maybe making a connection for people on the Not Worldwide and the transition to Niche because there's some interesting similarities from a product perspective where the Not Worldwide is a wedding marketplace that connects individuals who are planning their wedding with businesses that can help make their wedding a reality. So it's two-sided. And Niche is very much an education marketplace if you think of a platform that is connecting school searchers with schools, right? And we want to create value for both sides of this ecosystem. And so what's similar is not just those dynamics of a two-sided ecosystem, but that when it comes to planning a wedding and when it comes to choosing a school, these are important life moments. Often people haven't navigated them before. Generally, people are going to spend money. There's even pressure for perfection. If people think of their wedding day and that dream day, and I'm about to spend a lot of money and I want to be perfect, think of that high schooler that's considering what school to go to. I'm going to spend a lot of money. This is a moment in time. I want it to be perfect. There's really high expectations for what it will be once you get there. A lot of people incur debt. And so for me, even though these are really different industries, I'm super motivated that these are real world life moments that are hard to navigate and that products and companies can help solve. And so it was inspiring to transition from a lot that I can relate to, but then take it to the education world where for me, like these decisions are just so influential on many, many factors in your life, you know, ranging from where you choose to send your children to elementary school to where you as an individual choose to go for higher education. It just influences so much of your life from that point on that it was very motivating to be part of this industry. And then you really were asking, I think my perspective on what's cha what's changed in my perspective of education now that I've gotten into this new industry. And I would say maybe some of what you were hearing is like very relatable to me, stress that would be on the student and family side. So it was really relatable and not surprising that it's hard to make school decisions and a lot of expenses and pressure and thinking and research goes into that. But I think what surprised me is that I didn't realize how hard it was on the school side as well, that there's also a lot of stress, a lot of cost, a lot of craving of more transparency on interests of students and families. And so it was this moment of realizing like, wow, there's actually a lot of spending and pain on both sides of the ecosystem, which means this is really ripe for improving, you know, like it's ripe for modernizing and making it easier for both sides. Yeah. And they're both big decisions. I think most people go into saying, I'm just going to do this once too. That's, there's a lot of pressure when you have that. <laughs> there's a lot of pressure when you, you only, you're thinking this is the moment in time I'm going to do this yep. once and there's not a redo here. <laughs> yep. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Can't, not like playing a game. You can't hit reset on this. <laughs> Correct. Yep. That's great hearing 
hearing your side coming in, there's a lot more similarity that I think people would really realize. And I think that's part of why there's so many great, I always talk about the tangents that you can have of related industries that aren't doing the same thing that education can learn so much from. Absolutely. And I, I learned that even at the not, which is focusing on weddings, but there was a lot we could learn from how the travel industry was approaching things or how the real estate or job industry was approaching things. And that's when I, when I was saying to you, I look for inspiration from solutions outside of the education industry. It's because we as niche are positioned to make this connection between really consumers, searchers there. A lot of them are going to spend money even in private high schools, colleges, and then the businesses, which are the schools. And when you make that connection that some of this isn't unique to other industries, then you can look and see how they're solving some of the problems and what, what of those solutions make sense here as well. I always talk, recommend a book called Let Them Eat Cake by Pamela Danziger that's about luxury marketing. And there's so much similarity that you wouldn't think between education and luxury marketing. Because when you, when you look at it from the outside, to some people, you know, what's the difference between a Hyundai and a Mercedes? They both get you from point A to point B. So you have to say, okay, so what actually sets this piece apart? You know, yes. what sets one school apart from another when there may be real differences? Correct. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, all this is a great segue into our next question here. What are some of the dynamics at play in K-12 and higher ed that have really informed the product team's plans for 2022? You know, we've talked about these big pieces and pressures and especially now, yeah, even more pressure than there ever has been. Yeah, there is. I would say in terms of some of the dynamics, I think one obvious dynamic that we're all feeling, everyone in the world and every industry is like recognizing the impacts of COVID. And so for education, there's a lot changing because of that dynamic alone, both K-12, higher ed, all of the education businesses and decisions people are making. So for example, we're seeing with COVID, a freedom of people to maybe relocate more easily. And there's talk of like this migration that's happening south and west. Well, that we have to be aware of that. And how does that influence families in their education decisions? And how does that influence our partners who are schools and the way that they connect with the families and market to them when, if you think of K through 12, that shifts a bit where it's not just the people in your backyard that you're having to communicate to. And you might communicate differently with the people in your backyard than you do with people who are considering a move and often making, if you have children, you're making a lot of the decision around where you live based on the schools in that area. And so COVID is a virus, but then think about how it's changing what people are doing. And then we have to translate that to what's it doing in our space and how do we need to help the schools and the families navigate these decisions when there's a new theme, there's a lot of movement. And so that's a factor that we think a lot about. There's also some really unfortunate factors coming out of COVID in higher ed where we are now consistently seeing some enrollment numbers going down. And then some of that sitting with underrepresented groups where the hope is that the opposite would be happening and then COVID sets things back. And what I mean by the opposite is hoping that underrepresented groups that are like enrollment numbers would be growing to set people up for more opportunity and change and 
because of a variety of dynamics at play with COVID and a lot of factors related to where people get their influence in whether they move on to higher education or not is changing. And so we are eyes wide open that like those numbers are down and we have to think about our position here and how can we encourage and simplify and help students progress so that some that may be on the fence get that simplicity and that nudge to, to keep going. So those are dynamics that we think about for sure in our, in our product strategy is the simplicity, encouragement, doing the role that maybe a guidance counselor would do if you were using our platform and looking for guidance, advice, suggestions, etc. Some other dynamics are just the importance of authenticity in today's world. And so across the board, consumers, and then especially these younger and rising generations can see right through promotional, mm-hmm. controlled language and positioning and they're looking for authenticity and connection what is it really like and when i was saying how we can look at other industries there's a reason why if someone's thinking about a hotel to stay in they're not just going to the hotel's websites they're going to sites like TripAdvisor to really dig into reviews and see images posted by people that have stayed there before making their decision because that feels authentic. And Niche is really uniquely authentic in that way. We really strive to answer what is it really like at these schools. That helps the schools because the students and families that are searching for schools come on to Niche and have this trusted view is this school the right fit for me? They're, they're devouring reviews of other people that have been there and really getting a sense for what's it like to be at that school? What is it like to be part of this school's community? You know, we have our proprietary grades and rankings that are meant to help show where this school shines, where are there areas that if you're really looking for, this might not be the school for you. And so authenticity is going to continue to just be an underlying factor in our product strategy, you know, in continuing to invest in user-generated content and making sure that people can can understand what is it really like, because they will feel different consuming information on niche than they do when they go to the school's websites, because they, today's world thinks of that a little bit more like the shiny brochure, online brochure, and a platform is this unbiased place where I can dig into some genuine and authentic viewpoints. Are there companies or industries you can think of that are doing just a great job with authenticity and transparency and just doing a good job of showcasing that user experience as their messaging? It's always hard. I mean, use the example of like hotels and everything and the rooms always look nice, but even the nicest hotel, it's not going to look the same in the pictures. This is what you actually experience. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because my when you ask that question, my mind ranges from platforms that are positioned similarly to niche, like the TripAdvisors of the world, where they're giving you access to content that is coming from other people like you, and that creates some authenticity. But my mind also goes to brands that really resonate with people as authentic just because the entire experience with the brand is consistent and can, it evokes a, a certain feeling. So brands like Patagonia or um, certain shoe brands where like there's true authentic 
kind of mission and beliefs and values behind the marketing and people know it and they feel it and it's real. And so, yeah, I think that's a piece of it too. It's like when, uh, when I've seen commercials recently for some of the oil companies talking about solar energy and renewables, I, I don't have that same authentic view <laughs> of, of that, I guess. And see, this is where I was saying people are sharp. They can see through a message that a brand is communicating versus the reality of what it really means. Yeah. So yeah. you could see right through that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see how this continues to evolve. Like my, my five-year-old, we talked to her and, and show her examples of how to kind of read and engage with marketing. And, you know, when is it, when is it just hype and when can it actually be real? And so I'm, it's going to be interesting to see how these kids who grow up surrounded by digital personalized ads approach it how they approach it and how they decipher those things yeah we hear the same thing with influencers right on different social media this isn't yeah. new but the the followers of those influencers can spot immediately they don't mind sponsorships and promotions when it's truly in line with the interests, values, taste of that influencer. And it just makes sense, but they can spot it immediately if it's not aligned and forced. And therefore that messaging and that branding like doesn't actually work. Yeah. Does have the opposite effect. <laughs> you can really tell who is saying it because they're getting paid and who actually thinks it. Yes. So in addition to looking forward at these long range plans, what's your approach to just continually optimizing processes or systems? So the product development team, we have a commitment to two groups. We have a commitment to students and families searching mm -hmm. for schools, and we have a commitment to our school partners. And so we are constantly looking at how do we improve and refine our existing platform and our existing feature set, value, et cetera, to help both of those groups. That doesn't have to be some long-term future strategy, some like new build, new feature, new experience. It's balancing short-term wins that actually help alongside steps that take you on a more strategic path. And so there's important feedback loops between like our sales team, our customer support team, our user researchers, right? They're on the front lines with these students, families, and schools, and they're giving feedback loops to the product development organization so that we can identify some wins that just like, hey, tons of people are asking about this particular thing, or a lot of issues or bugs with that, like we want to solve it. And our customer support group in particular has done a great job of flagging what they call hot button issues. So if there's like a high volume of like questions, requests, issues, they bring that to us and we were really psyched because we solved all of those last year. Like hot button issues were solved and it's something that sometimes you have to fit in, but makes a big difference in the kind of just typical user and day to day of our, of our clients. Yeah. If I can, if I can pick your brain a little on that, that's something that you see at schools a lot where questions and concerns might come into a front office. They might come into individual offices. They might come in through social media, through yes. emails to the president or school head. How are you collecting all those in one place and then tracking them and making progress on them? So a piece of it is how we structure our teams. And so, you know, we have product managers and they have partners 
in product design and engineering. And even within our product managers, we structure our product teams to have some that are really focused on the user side, some that are really focused on the school side, and then establishing those inputs that are specific to the users and specific to the schools mm-hmm. are a bit different. And so we have, for example, a dedicated user researcher on the client side talking to schools, interviewing schools, and that's providing an input right into the teams that are focusing on the client experience. And sales is a direct input into the team focusing on the client experience. And customer support will get feedback from both using the platform. And so what's what's important is to know what are all of those inputs as you, you just rattled off a whole bunch of inputs that yeah. exist for a school. The second important piece though, is to know where to direct them. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you want to bring them together. So you see the hot button issues that bubble up because you mm-hmm. don't want to just, you don't want to direct them to five different people and they won't notice a trend or a theme. Right. And it's kind yeah. of, where do you direct these inputs so that someone can recognize, huh, this is something that we're seeing pop up a bit on our social channels. Plus a lot of people are calling and asking questions about it. And it's getting reported like even to the room parent, you know, this Mm -hmm. is what it niche, we might define a hot button issue, but we recognize it because of the like volume or frequency, or it's something that keeps coming up from a variety of inputs. And then we take action on it. And I think that's the important piece too, when you were talking about continual optimization, like for school to think about that too, it doesn't have to be like massive changes and broad strokes evolution, but kind of, are there some themes that are bubbling up? And if we take some steps to explore change, or like I said, a quick win, like, let's just tackle this, this thing, it's, it's, it's coming up in a lot of directions. And then following through to let people that are impacted know you've made the change and, and create that good feeling that we're listening and doing something about it. And are you organizing all these and documents and some sort of system and just weekly meetings or how are they all come together and make sure everyone's talking because I can just see an institution somewhere that might have 10 offices that each hear the same concern once or twice a month and might not realize it's a problem but if you have 20 people all saying it if they're not talking you're not going to see that trend well I think that it can vary from organization to organization but I'll share some things I've done. I've had meetings in the past that are called the top five, where you are thinking about those inputs and pulling in at least one person from each of them. So in product development, it would be a meeting where you have someone from sales, someone from customer support. Maybe it is someone managing your social channels, someone from research, and at least monthly coming together and hearing from each other, what are the top five things that are bubbling up for me? so they can hear one another, but you also recognize immediately something that spans across. So, you know, that's a, that, that's a solution where it's actually like a meeting, but people know going into it, the purpose, and there's a level of prioritization. And I've found that if you have that one kind of representative, they get feedback before the meeting. Mm -hmm. So they'll even, they might have some more people that they have to garner input from on their team or sources where they're getting it, but they're bringing it to the table. Now there's tools as well. So I've also approached this at times with like a more of an inbound 
system where a form with a link, like a Google form that anyone can access, mm -hmm. but you create the form in such a way that they can tag their input being very specific to the theme and even have had those forms go right into a project tracking tool. In our case, Jira, this was an older system, but using a Google form and they would say, here's, you know, my department, is this a bug? Is it a user error? Is it an idea? Is it, you know, and then what's the theme? And so for schools, you know, the theme might be related to a number of factors that the school is already thinking about, but you know what those generally are and you're collecting it in a more systematic way as long as someone's then reviewing everything. Okay. Yeah, that, that's great advice. That's something I hope that people take to heart because that's a common pain point that people just aren't communicating enough and they're all hearing here and there you're having the same issue, but if we're not coming together, yeah, that's a great way to, to tackle it. Yeah, so, so, so one step is the identifying what those things are and which ones are themes that span across or bubble up to being hot topics, impactful. And then the next step is actually doing something about it. Yes. I'm seeing that theme come up too. That <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's the collecting and there's doing something. <laughs> yes, exactly. Both equally important. <laughs> yep. You know, when, we, when we've had conversations in the past, you talked about the need to balance what partners need with the platforms that students and families need. So you talked a little bit about how we think about, in terms of the product organization, how we collect those needs, how we test solutions to those needs, and then how you actually build out ways to fix these problems. So probably you've heard me now mentioning user researcher a couple of times, but we do very much value user research and user can be schools, user can be high school students, it could be families. And that user research for us is critical for really being in touch with the people we're serving. And I think this could translate to schools too, where you'd want to really stay in touch with the parents and the students and mm -hmm. their needs. And internally, we have a number of roles that do that. So dedicated user researcher, like that is their role, but our product managers do that. We have UX designers that do that. So we're conducting ongoing research and those can come in the form of surveys, polls, usability tests, even in-product surveys. Maybe they're actually on niche doing something and we ask them a question. I mean, schools can think about that too. They're on the website navigating to certain areas and maybe based on the area they're on if it's related to enrollment or admissions and the school's looking for input or have a question to be answered they're, they're asking it right then and there and so we ensure that we're collecting feedback to, to stay in touch with the problems that people are facing because you generally build something to solve a problem and so we want to identify what are these top problems. And then you can you could see it segueing this process into even that brainstorm piece that we started with. If by staying in touch, you identify a problem, that may be how you frame the brainstorm. We need to solve this problem. Let's put some cross-functional heads together and come up with some ideas that we want to test. And we, we carry it all the way through. So it's starting with the problem, idea generation, and then you need to test it and validate. You don't jump to the solution. You hypothesize how you might solve the problem and do some lightweight testing that could range from feedback to a small version of whatever that solution is and see if it's actually going to solve the problem. 
before you go further. And we try to follow a process like that throughout our product development cycle. So we're, we're con- constantly in this cycle where there are things we're actually executing on. So those are the problems we're actively solving. And in parallel, we're doing what we call discovery. So we're asking questions, we're doing research, we're trying to identify the next set of problems to solve while we're executing and testing the ones that we already identified. And are you doing this using personas or, or user types? Just think about on the school side that you might have an audience of alumni, parents, prospective students, current students, donors, the community. Yep, because we have a variety of personas and and it is important. To, and on both sides, we have personas on the school side that our product needs to and our partnership needs to support. And we have personas on the school searcher side, because even some of the things you've hear, heard me mention, the parents have different needs than the students. Now, both are involved in your higher education decision in, in many cases when you're a high school student. And so we identify those personas. But there's also a difference between a sophomore in high school and a senior in high school and what their needs are on niche. And so we, we need to think about cohorts as well. So that helps us focus the research efforts. Like you're going to pose the questions differently and think about the problems differently if you have a certain persona in mind. Well, we talked a lot now about personalization and, and personally, I, I prefer relevance even as a big topic in enrollment marketing, both in K-12 and higher ed. Uh, what are some ways that we're looking at building on what we already have on the niche platform? So we, in terms of building what we already have on the niche platform, we definitely want to continue to invest in recommendations. I think a big value proposition for niche is to take these unique insights we have student side and the school side and help match them with the best fit that's central and core to our mission and why we're here and so the current platform enables students and families to do a lot of that diligence and help them determine if a school is the right fit we have some lightweight tools like a college quiz or find your fit Mm -hmm. tool that also tries to take more of this like proactive and helpful guiding step of tell us some information and we can also guide you on what schools you might want to consider or might be a good fit for you. But there's just so much more we can do there. We have so much intel on what people are looking for and the actions they're taking, the schools they've saved to their list, the schools that they're looking at. And then we have a lot of information on the client side, the school side as well, our partners. And so we want to lean way more into that where we take what we know about the students and families, their interests, their needs, what they're searching for, their actions. And we we take what we know about our schools and, and really invest in our recommendations. So that's, that's definitely in line with, you know, relevance and personalization. And I would say there's another piece of relevance that's really important to us. And I think schools should be thinking about too, and I'm sure they all are, is meeting people where they are. And mm-hmm. so people are getting information from a lot of different places and they're on a lot of different platforms already for other reasons and you want to meet them there and stay 
on top of what those platforms are because it changes really quickly. And so for niche, for example, we're great at meeting people on Google. <laughs> like if people are searching for things on Google, we're, we are really great at meeting them there and being in the result set so they can come through and get the information that they're looking for on our platform. We're really strong in Facebook and Instagram and some of these channels that are starting to feel more traditional, but we're also evolving and getting really good at meeting people on TikTok and Snapchat and Discord and newer channels where lots of people people are spending a tremendous amount of time and they're already there and they're there to get information and to learn and to discover things. And, and we want to be there too, so that they know we can help them in that discovery and then bring them into niche when it's related to their school search. Yeah, and I think that really segues it next into uh, into why I want to talk about here. We talk a lot about friction mm-hmm. and sort of the, these pain points, these sticking points, you know, this need to remove barriers, make actions easier, yes. uh, both on the platform and then in the enrollment and search process in general. Can you share some of the ways sort of pull back the curtain and kind of look forward here? What are some ways we're looking at refining the platform and removing barriers for students and families? So it does kind of start a bit with meeting them where they are so that they don't have to hop all over the place to find what they need and bring them into niche. And I would say our current platform as a whole reduces a lot of friction because it's one destination that answers a lot of questions that school searchers have rather than going to many, many different school websites, for example, to get that information. So I think we're, we're at a good starting point where part of how we've reduced friction is consolidating the information that people are looking for on one platform and making it easy for them to compare and narrow their choices. But there's a lot more we can build off of that, both in part of reducing friction is taking the work off of the individual. And so if we can change the experience based on what we already know about them, what they're looking for, what they need. And when they are on our platform, we're serving them the information that's most relevant to them. It just simplifies the whole thing, reduce the digging and surface that information right up to them. And so that that falls in the bucket of personalization. But another part of reducing friction is just flows that you can streamline. And I think that's really workflows that you can streamline. Mm -hmm. And that's really important for schools and every product and platform to think about. So for example, our registration process, when students and families create an account on Niche, we have so many tests underway to streamline that process for them. So it's not a heavy lift and the more streamlined, the more likely people are to go through that process. Another element of streamlining is streamlining the connection between the student and the school because the students are already on niche and they're already looking at information about these schools. They're going to the school profile, digesting a lot of information. And in that moment, they may have additional questions or they might have more that they're looking to dig into. And if we can streamline the connection point between the school and student in that moment, again, it reduces friction. They don't have to go somewhere else to start the discussion. So we've been testing chat widgets on the school profiles and thinking about ways where we can just continue the dialogue without introducing new steps for the the student or the family that's looking for information. I like that we came full circle. We started out talking about forms and, and fields, and now we're back again. <laughs> we're back again. 
Yes. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think there's just there's a lot of things schools can do to look at what are those we talk about pain points, we talk about, you know, what are the barriers to students enrolling. And there's a lot that I think kind of gets pushed as, well, that's a different offices. You know, they have to worry about that or that's a different you know, you you being centralized product, you don't get that, do you? Everything is sort of <laughs> coming <your> through <laughs> <laughs> to some degree, but we yeah. do have to centralize information that's coming from a lot of different places and needs of a lot of different types of people. And yeah, I can relate though to that feeling of maybe a school may have a feeling of something's disjointed and how important it is to even if it's not one team, figure out the process or the structure that enables some central knowledge sharing, cohesion of information and teams and that sort of thing. You know, one, we'll, we'll kind of leave here on some advice. What advice do you have to schools and to institutions about how they can go about identifying and removing the friction in their own processes? So in terms of removing the friction in their own processes, I think overarchingly schools have to think about how do we simplify this wherever we can? How can we remove steps between what someone is doing and what we ultimately want them to achieve and do? So I'll give a concrete example just because I think it's helpful. Like in higher education, there's so many schools that actually have really high acceptance rates. Like they may accept 80% or more of the students who are applying, but the students are still going through like a heavy application process. And it's really pausing and thinking, is that weight necessary? If we know we're going to accept a lot of these people, how do we simplify the process for them? Right? How do we just, almost flip it so they know we you are you are going to be accepted into this school and are there steps that maybe aren't required in order for the school to make that decision and it simplifies this simplifies things for the student and will result in more students enrolling and i think that i would also just encourage schools to be really open minded and innovative i think that in some cases status Quo isn't working and just being comfortable thinking about how could we do things differently here so that this is easier for students and families and we're ultimately getting more great people into our school. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. I, I went through the process back at, at my last role of going through every form, every application, every and and taking that hard look of do we actually use this information at this stage or can we collect it later right there there were so many fields that were collected at the inquiry stage that we didn't use until they were enrolling so why are we asking it of inquiries because if you st if you know that you want them to enroll and you don't ask for it up front they may be more likely to apply because it's a lighter lift you know and you can exactly. still get the information that you need it's just thinking about when do you need it and and the second piece is is it critical is it critical to the decision making and maybe even asking how much and what do i need to make a decision and focusing on that and seeing if it simplifies a process it's going to yield better results and and if i can circle us back to the game again you know are we collecting and doing it just to do it or is it actionable is it something we actually can 
take action on. Right. Well, that seems like a good a good ending point. So <laughs> I just want <laughs> I just want to say thank you for your time here. And uh, yeah, this was a, a great conversation. I'm hoping that some wheels are turning about how do we take these ideas from product and product management and translate them to our school to make processes easier to make all of, all of what we do more efficient. Oh, I hope it's helpful to those who are listening. And I really appreciate you inviting me in and also asking some really interesting and thought-provoking questions. Oh, well, uh, I appreciate that. If people want to continue the conversation or just pick your brain, is there a way that they could get in touch with you? Or Sure. I think that if folks want to connect with me on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. I'm active on that platform and happy to make additional connections, especially in this industry. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you so much, Athena. Uh, I hope everyone stays safe and, and happy and healthy for the rest of 2022 here. Yes, I do too. Thanks so much. Thank you.